You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So it's important that uh, different regulatory bodies are updating their standards uh, to ensure that they're capturing their, their, their relevant threats that we're currently dealing with. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben shares an interesting federal case on the legal defense of forgetting one's passcode. I've got an opinion from the EFF on Apple's App Store restrictions. And later in the show, my conversation with Blaze Wabo. He's healthcare and financial services director at cybersecurity firm Align. We're going to be talking about some of the major cyber regulatory changes that are coming. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. All right, Ben, let's hop into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So another one from the Professor Orrin Kerr uh, Twitter files. Uh, this is a case uh, he alerted me to, not me personally, <laughs> unfortunately, but his followers. Right. Orrin, Orrin Kerr so far does not have a red phone to Ben. I uh, One day, one day in my dreams that might happen, <laughs> okay. uh, but so far that has yet to take place. All right. So it is a federal case, a Third Circuit case, uh, and it uh, concerns an individual named Michael Dasham. Hmm. So... There was a 911 call to law enforcement in the state of Pennsylvania about some type of domestic dispute. So police went to this guy's house, and he was getting into a physical altercation with his father. Hmm. His father said to the police, my son uh, possesses child pornography. I saw it just the other day. Hmm. Uh, Michael admitted uh, that he had child pornography. Uh, He is arrested and charged with the federal crime of possessing Child pornography. Okay. But uh, law enforcement asked him to unlock his tablet on the scene, and he refused by saying, quote, I don't know the password. And that's what this case really comes down to, is whether there is a valid defense in simply saying, I can't remember the passcode. A lot of that has to do with how believable it is that a person actually does not know the passcode. Okay. 
So I, I think on behalf of everyone who's forgotten a password that they made up moments after making it, there is a case to be made for that. Right. I mean, it does happen. <laughs> I would say for a tablet passcode, it strains credibility because all of us, I mean, I've probably typed in the tablet passcode for my kids 600 times before uh, I ate breakfast this morning. So this is for, okay, so this is the passcode for the entire device. For the entire device. Got it's it. not for a specific account. It's not one of those right. Chrome-generated difficult passwords that nobody knows. He wasn't locking down a folder inside of the device. This exactly. Was the, this is the six-digit yep. passcode. Okay. So he's claiming that he doesn't know it. Yeah. That strains credibility and law enforcement saw right through it basically mm -hmm. called uh, called him on his bs and said if your father saw these images just the other day then clearly one of you knows how to unlock this device mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to go ahead and assume that it's you okay uh so this person dasham still refused to comply the computer was sent to a forensics lab where they were able to unlock the device found the offending files uh, he was charged, convicted. Uh, and so at the sentencing phase, the judge took under consideration whether Dasham tried to obstruct the case by refusing to disclose uh, his passcode. And they found hmm. that he did. Hmm. Um, just because the testimony of the father and the son both indicate that they had had access to the device, to the contents of the device, in the previous couple of days— it would be completely incredulous. It would be unbelievable to try to claim that the person did not know their passcode. It's hmm. just simply not a, a valid defense. So does where's the Fifth Amendment slide in here? Uh, so you're uh, you're getting a little bit ahead of me oh, there. Oh, sorry. Uh, but I'll, I'll just <laughs> jump right into that now since uh, since you've jumped into that okay that uh, hot jacuzzi here. Yeah. So there's obviously this Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Yeah. And Dasham as sort of a last-ditch effort to save himself from an enhanced sentence said, well, by denying that uh, or by refusing to unlock this device with my passcode, I was simply asserting my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination mm -hmm. uh, because if I had entered in the passcode and you had viewed these files, I would have been summarily convicted, uh, and I have a right, a Fifth Amendment right, to not have to testify against myself. Yeah. Um, and that is applicable to the states uh, through the 14th Amendment. What law enforcement, or what this court said here, is that this is not a proper invocation of the Fifth Amendment right. Hmm. For one, it's unclear based on court precedents whether this is testimonial uh, evidence. So the Fifth Amendment only, uh, right against self-incrimination, only applies to testimonial evidence, basically things you say, yeah. uh, the content of, of one's own mind. Uh, and there's kind of conflicting case law on whether passcodes count as, uh, as testimonial evidence. They sort of tend to count as testimonial evidence, but there's a lot of confusion since passcodes have become kind of interchangeable with biometric uh, yeah, well, that, I was going to go there with you as well because uh, my recollection based on previous conversations we've had is that you know, biometrics were open game but passwords were not. That's generally the rule but there's been some disagreements. Now that passcodes are functionally equivalent to biometric data, there's been some discussion, especially among lower federal courts, that perhaps – 
the passcode is not testimonial evidence. Hmm. That ended up not being the deciding factor in this case. Okay. The deciding factor in this case is that this person never asserted his Fifth Amendment rights. He just claimed that he didn't know the password. So there's an obvious lesson here for people who are accused of committing heinous crimes. (laughs) If you're going to assert your Fifth Amendment privilege at any point in the – either during the arrest or at a subsequent trial or at a sentencing hearing, you actually have to assert that right. Simply by claiming that you forget the password, in other words, you're clearly lying, that is not a proper invocation of your Fifth Amendment right. I see. And if you don't invoke that right – Prior to your conviction, you have waived the ability to invoke that right post-conviction. Hmm. So you can't you can't invoke the Fifth Amendment retroactively. Exactly. I mean, huh. this is a – if I had a client who was in Dasham's uh, position, I might have tried this too because he's so screwed. I mean, he, <laughs> he clearly committed the crime and he's, yeah. he's going to get Yeah, and you mentioned a, he admitted that he had the, the stuff ahead of time, so – was he this did. A, a matter of just seeing just how bad it really was? Right. Yeah. So it turns out he had – there are, as we found out in the Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, hearings, uh, largely the sentences for these types of crimes depend on the number of files that are uncovered on a device. Yeah. Um, that frankly seems a little bit outdated in the age of digital files since somebody might be sent a um, single folder that contains a million separate images. Right. Uh, and that's – I don't know if that's necessarily more heinous than somebody snooping around getting actual physical photographs but only getting 100 of them. Right, right. Um, but that is the prevailing legal standard. Hmm. Uh, and he clearly knew that he was going to be a lot of, in a lot of trouble if he unlocked the device. I think he was trying to stave off uh, the enhanced penalties that would have come from – uh, seeing how many specific images and how – I don't want to get into the details here, but there were images that uh, depicted things like masochism, sadism uh, yeah. that might have enhanced his penalties. Bad, so, bad stuff. So yeah, he was he was trying to get ahead of the situation by saying, okay, I have them, but I'm not going to let you see them right. uh, because I don't remember my passcode. Uh-huh. So what this means for future cases, both in the Third Circuit and around the country, is there is not a proper defense that you forgot your your passcode. And someone claiming that should not therefore think that they have properly invoked their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Hmm. You actually have to assert that right. Uh, I don't know what the ultimate disposition of the case would have been if instead of saying, I forgot my passcode, Mr. Dasham had said – I'm not going to do that. That violates my uh, Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Talk right. to my attorney. Right. Uh, but it certainly would have given him a better chance than, oh, I forgot my passcode. <laughs> uh, so I think there is a broader lesson there. Uh, not that anybody should be a criminal, but if you are being charged uh, with one of these crimes, then I-, I think that's the lesson we can take from this case. What do you make of that? Is that is that a reasonable use of the Fifth Amendment, in your opinion, to—, to if you know that there's some something incriminating is going to be revealed uh, by giving up your password, is that is that what the, is that the spirit of the Fifth Amendment? It absolutely is the spirit of the Fifth Amendment. Yeah, you don't want to put a criminal defendant in an impossible position. So if they are asked at any trial proceeding, "Did you do this or do you have this?" and you do have or have that thing or did that thing, you are faced with incredibly difficult options. You could lie about it, but then you could be convicted of perjury. Mm. Uh, You could admit it, but then you're admitting to the crime and you're going to do the time, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
the third option, if we didn't have this right against self-incrimination, would be to be charged with contempt of court. Mm. Uh, So then you would be put in this position where no matter what the person did or said, they would be subjecting themselves to criminal penalties. And therefore, the trial would be kind of worthless. There wouldn't really be a a functional right for a defendant to make his or her case in court. Hmm. Uh, That's why we have this right against self-incrimination. I think it's certainly... The details uh, are debated and we can debate them, but certainly the spirit of it is reflected in don't reveal something that's going to incriminate you. Wow. And I certainly think uh, a, a passcode fits that bill. Do we know how this one turned out? Yes. So the uh, court has uh, not only upheld the conviction, but they upheld the sentencing proceedings where there were sentencing enhancements for obstructing the case. Uh, they ruled that his Fifth Amendment uh, invocation was not proper and is not applicable, doesn't affect, affect either his conviction or his sentence. And there were also additional sentence enhancements uh, for the type of pornography that he had on his computer hmm. um, because uh, it was especially aggravating. Uh, the, the circumstances were particularly aggravating. Yeah. So the result of this is this person is going to uh, go to federal prison for a long time. Yeah. And I don't see any proper grounds, at least in my reading of the legal case, for appeal. So I think this is the final disposition of this case. It really is fascinating how how often, I guess, the, the chipping around the edges seems to happen around this these kinds of crimes, right? Because I, I guess they're inherently tend towards privacy I, I, in a weird way. Right. I mean, it's people trying to conceal something that they have. So necessarily you are going into people's personal devices. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Court has said that to get into a cell phone because of the contents, the the nature of the contents on one's cell phone, our entire life is in these little tiny devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, the government needs a warrant. That was Riley v. California, uh, including when it is incident to arrest. Uh, so I think depending on the circumstances here, what Dasham could have said is um, – I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment privilege, come back with some type of specific warrant to open the device, and and we can talk. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, after uh, the arrest took place, the government was able to obtain a warrant to send it to the forensics expert to actually unlock it. Hmm. Uh, so clearly there would have been probable cause to unlock that device, but Dasham might have been able to buy himself a little bit of time by invoking his privilege and, and demanding some type of judicial uh, solution. But yeah, I mean, by by necessity, this is going to be some type of an invasion of privacy for criminal defendants because it's something that they are trying to keep secretive on on their own devices. Yeah, uh, Devices that they control, it's their domain, they have the passcode, mm-hmm. um, they control the kill switches. So uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. That that's the nature of these cases. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to uh, Professor Kerr's uh, tweet uh, about this as well as uh, an article uh, covering or actually uh, a document uh, about the case itself. We'll have that in the show notes. All right, Ben. Well, my story this week uh, actually comes from the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. This is, a, uh, I guess you'd call it an opinion piece by Cory Doctorow. Uh, and it's titled, Facebook says Apple is too powerful. They're right. 
Now, how often do you see the EFF side? <laughs> agree with, with, agree with Facebook, Facebook, yeah. Right? So that might be a first. It, I mean, uh, admittedly, uh, a provocative uh, headline <laughs> to, to generate interest and uh, guilty as charged. It, it made me uh, read it. Uh, this article uh, starts out talking about uh, the efforts that Apple made to sort of cut down on Facebook's ability to track us. Uh, and by making that ability opt-in on their iOS platform, and of course the vast majority of people did not opt-in to Facebook's ability to track them. Uh, Facebook claims that that costs the company uh, $10 billion in the first year. Do you with, see these crocodile tears? I know. I'm, They're I'm, flowing from my, <laughs> playing from my the, poor eyes. The world's smallest violin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but Facebook has uh, shot back at Apple and is saying that uh, basically Apple's App Store uh, is onerous, that the fact that Apple does not allow you to load apps from anywhere except the App Store on your iOS device unless you jailbreak the device or something like that, uh, they're saying that's problematic. That gives Apple too much control over – by having control over what goes in that App Store – that Apple has too much control over the device uh, and the EFF is making the case that Apple should allow alternative app stores. So there should be private app stores, non-Apple app stores. And I guess this is much the way that uh, Google uh, handles things uh, with the Google Play Store where you can go through the Google Play Store, but you can also on an Android device just purchase the app. Just load yeah. things. Well, and and this is the way it works on Mac OS, on Mac's de- desktop machines. You can go through Apple's App Store, or you can just load an app. Right. Um, Apple makes the case that uh, iOS is much more secure because of that. I think that's a fair case to be made. Uh, certainly, iOS is comparatively secure relative to a lot of the other operating systems out there. And a lot of that is because of the scrutiny that things get on the App Store. We've certainly seen that things aren't perfect and things get by uh, the App Store that are problematic. There's been malware and tracking apps and all sorts of things that make their way through. Um, But it's interesting that the EFF is making this case. Uh, There is some uh, legislation that uh, some... uh, the Congress is, is working on to uh, to try to make this uh, or to make the case that Apple should allow side loading. Um, what's your take on this, Ben? So it reminds me of that Onion meme of the worst person you know. Uh, tragedy, the worst person you know, just made a great point. <laughs> uh, I see people posting that poor guy's picture, and right. now we're supposed to know what the uh, what the meme is. Right. Uh, I think that's kind of the spirit of this article that. Even if you're not sympathetic at all to Facebook, they are making a good point about uh, Apple and and the iOS operating system. Mm-hmm. Uh, one subheadline here is that benevolent dictators are still dictators. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think that rings particularly true. What Apple is doing here is giving its customers the option to opt out of these tracking services. Mm-hmm. That's great, but that's a unilateral decision Apple has made that necessarily has to apply to all applications downloaded onto an iOS device. Mm -hmm. And they have made that decision unilaterally, uh, which is obviously uh, at least the way the current law stands within their rights. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are – they control such a large portion of the of the market that they are basically dictators. Right. Uh, they exert this type of dominance over 
the app market, which goes against competitive practices. And as you noted, this isn't true for the major other uh, app store, Mm -hmm. uh, Google Play, where you can either download the app from Google Play or you can download it from an internet browser uh, and just have the app on your device. And as you say, for um, Mac desktops, uh, MacBook Airs, MacBooks, etc. Yeah. Uh, So I think Facebook does have a point that users should be able to choose other app stores. Um, I think Apple, in the view of of EFF, is wrong uh, to state that just by down just by downloading an app from somewhere besides the Apple Store, that there are necessarily going to be predatory and invasive apps. I think that's an anti-competitive practice hmm. and not necessarily grounded in reality. Um, it would be nice if Apple and Facebook, these two behemoths, uh, could join forces to. Kind of get the best of both worlds here, where... <laughs> okay, <laughs> go on. I know, I, this <laughs> might seem a little bit too idealistic, uh, but it would be great if there were competition in where we could download applications and uh, every user had the right to opt in or opt out of Facebook's uh, tracking uh, shenanigans. Yeah, but I mean, let's play this at through, right? So I think what Facebook is getting at here is that Facebook – so let's say Apple allowed a third-party app store, right? Right. So what happens next? Facebook pulls its app from Apple's app store and says, if you want Facebook, you have to sideload it. Right. And if you want Facebook that's sideloaded, guess what? Now Apple no longer has control over our ability to track you. So if you want Facebook, you get tracked. Right. Are we better off? <sighs> That's a good question. I meant for that side to be particularly audible. Right, right. I think from most users' perspectives, uh, perspective we would not be better off because for most users, there's not a discernible difference between sideloading and downloading an app from directly from the Apple Store. Yeah. Uh, what they really care about is whether they're being tracked or not. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, if the benevolent dictators at Apple are saying, if you want to be part of our Apple Store, you have to allow people to opt out. Uh, I think for most people, that would be a better solution. If we did a survey of um, people who use the Facebook application, they would probably say, yeah, I'd like the option to opt out, but I don't care whether the application is sideloaded. That makes mm-hmm. no difference to me. Right. If I, we're th- Yeah, sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, I, I mean, I just think it's it's kind of rich in a way that Facebook is accusing Apple of not providing alternatives and yet Facebook is a platform for which there are no real alternatives. Yeah, I mean, it is literally the worst possible spokesperson uh, for what is otherwise a valid <laughs> right. argument. Right, Because okay. <laughs> Facebook doesn't have anti-competitive principles. If they did, they would not be Facebook or right. Meta. Uh, and right. they certainly have very little ground to stand on here. But just like that Onion meme, on this very narrow point, they happen to be right, uh, at least according to EFF, and I, and I think EFF is, is right in their evaluation here. So there are other uh, scenarios where this very thing has happened. I think folks have made the case that, for example, video game consoles, right? Nintendo has absolute control over what you can put on their game system. Right. So even if you're a third-party provider, your game has to be approved by Nintendo, and you have to pay— a percentage of your proceeds to Nintendo. 
And Bowser can be very selective in, in which games he <laughs> allows. Right, that's so, right. Yeah. So, you know, there's precedent here. And I don't see a whole lot of people having problems with that in the way that they have with this. Obviously, bigger ecosystem, not exactly the same sort of thing. But I guess my point is this is not the, the first time this has happened, nor is it the only place where this sort of thing exists. Yeah, I think you're right that it's the scale here that matters, and we're talking about the two behemoths. Yeah. Uh, not everybody is a gamer, but pretty much everybody purchases apps or downloads apps, free apps from the Apple Store, right. and or uses Facebook on their mobile device. So I think it's just an, an issue about scalier. If we're going to have this fight, this is the largest profile version of this fight that we're that we're going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think from a theoretical perspective, Facebook is right. Uh, but I also think Apple, given that they have already made this anti-competitive decision to only allow apps to be downloaded through the App Store, at least I think they're making the right decision by giving people the opt-in, opt-out option. Uh, for Facebook. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I, I agree that it would be better if there wasn't this singular market, if there were a way for uh, app developers to get onto people's devices without going through this really restrictive gatekeeper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, well, we will have a link to that article in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can send it to caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Blaze Wabo. He is a healthcare and financial services director at a firm called Align. And our conversation centers on some of the major cyber regulatory changes that are coming down the pike. Here's my conversation with Blaze Wabo. Today in 2022, we're certainly living a different world uh, in comparison to two years ago. Uh, so it's important that different standards have to evolve from a risk standpoint that are relevant with a threat today to be able to address those risks and ensure that controls are in place to, uh, to mitigate them as well. Uh, obviously, post-pandemic, or at least hoping to be out of the, of the pandemic soon, um, certainly most people are working now remotely, and there are definitely new threats uh, from uh, working remotely standpoint, especially when you look at the healthcare industry. 
when you think about the the evolution of uh, telemedicine just in the last two years, statistics show that telemedicine has grown by over 2,000% just in the last two years. Uh, that's an incredible number, right? Uh, now you have a, a physician or a primary care provider that uh, may be at the convenience of their home uh, and the patient as well, and they're using a remote session, uh, usually uh, with video. And there are, there are device manufacturers that would have what is called a remote patient monitoring device uh, that's either collecting data or transmitting data during the session or you know, ongoing, on an ongoing basis as well, um, certainly exposes us to a, a new level of threat. Uh, so it's important that uh, different regulatory bodies are updating their standards uh, to ensure that they're capturing the, the, the relevant threats that we're currently dealing with. You know, it strikes me that uh, having come through the pandemic and, and people adjusting to, as you say, in the medical world, uh, being able to, to have these remote visits, this is something that consumers want. I think this is a convenience that people have uh, grown accustomed to. Do you suppose that the regulatory agencies are going to be able to to pivot quickly enough to make this the new norm? I think so. I think there's hope. Um, we know about a month ago, uh, President Biden declared a, uh, a state of urgency, uh, especially for the healthcare and financial services sector, to ensure that they're implementing uh, cybersecurity practices to protect uh, their infrastructure, right? Uh, so essentially, the government is looking for the marketplace to... Uh, to be on guards, right? To put their guards up. From a medical device standpoint, uh, recently there's been uh, the release of a new NIST standard called the NIST 1800. Uh, essentially, that standard protects the manufacturers of medical devices. So, f- from the standpoint of uh, manufacturing before it's even deployed uh, in- into production, the manufacturing companies need to make sure that they're following best practices from a security standpoint. And the FDA came and approved that as well. So the FDA is pushing for those regulations as well. Recently, ISO, the ISO standard, which is an international standard, by the way, uh, recently updated their, stand, their 27,001 uh, standard to ensure that they're using a risk assessment approach. So it's important that everybody is basically doing whatever they need to do to uh, address the relevant risk and, and ensuring that they're implementing the, the appropriate controls as well. You know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, industry in, in general uh, doesn't like new regulations and new burdens of new regulations. But how are they responding to these? Are, are they is, is there a recognition that uh, these are, you know, being presented in good faith and, and for the, the sake of consumers? Yes, absolutely. Um, Dave, I think it's, it's necessary, right? Because when you think about it, uh, especially with the, the growth of ransomware, which, by the way, ransomware is grown by... Uh, over 750% uh, based on a Deloitte Consulting uh, magazine just in the last two years. So now it's it's not a matter of uh, if you get breached, it's a matter of when you get breached, right? So things like ransomware that can cripple a business plan, it's important that organizations have an incident response plan or a breach notification plan in place. And um, also some disaster recovery plans, right? Nobody wants to pay millions of dollars for ransomware. By the way, uh, the government has advised uh, the private sector not to pay um, um, those fines uh, or ransomware, I should say, whenever somebody is demanding those things. So it's important that organizations across the spectrum have controls in place. They're performing a risk assessment ahead of time. They are ensuring that they have an incident response plan, updating those periodically. 
uh, more importantly, they are not storing their incident response plan and your disaster recovery plan in the cloud. Because if your servers or your systems are crippled, um, there goes your plan as well, right? So having that offsite, updating those periodically, training your employees to ensure that they are paying attention on phishing attacks, not clicking on links that they shouldn't click on. Everybody's taking it seriously. Um, we've passed the days uh, day for cybersecurity is the is the concern of the IT team or the CISO, for example. Cybersecurity today is a concern of everybody, uh, right? It's important that uh, consumer data is protected. It's paramount or it will cost companies you know, millions of dollars or possibly even shut down and go bankrupt. Yeah, with the folks that, that you work with, are, are you finding that particular industries are, are, are best suited to adapt to these changes or are there certain sectors that are uh, more flexible than others? Yeah, so I, I think time has proven that the financial sector is usually above or ahead the curveball when it comes to uh, protecting um, their systems. And uh, obviously, that's where the money is, right? So they need to be ahead of the curveball to ensure that people's assets are protected. However, as they implement more controls, the, the bad guys become more sophisticated. So I'll, I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, there's there's a new term that came out called ransomware as a service. Essentially, what that is, the professional cyber attackers are marketing a product called ransomware as a service, uh, where if you're not as savvy um, in, in attacks, you can buy um, ransomware kits in the marketplace, in the dark web to launch your attacks, right? So it's becoming commercialized essentially right so the financial sector is ahead of is ahead of the curveball in in in, re, in comparison to other sectors in the industry however they are the ones that are being attacked the most uh, the healthcare sector proves to be uh, lagging quite a bit a lot of regulations are being pushed president trump in january of 2001 before he left office he signed what is called the hyper safe harbor essentially providing some sort of um, not total safe harbor, but some sort of um, safe harbor for companies that are implementing cybersecurity practices, uh, just to ensure that if you do have an incident and you do have cybersecurity practices in place, it reduces any fines uh, that the Office of Civil Rights, the OCR, will enforce to you. Um, it might reduce the amount of uh, the investigations as well in terms of, of a time and resource perspective. The manufacturing industry, as we both know, Dave, has taken a major hit from a supply chain standpoint not necessarily from the attacks, mostly from the pandemic. And due to lack of resources, now they are the, they are the most exposed, I would say, right? So it's important that the manufacturing sector is, you know, moving the ball forward, collaborating with agencies and and uh, and, and the whole supply chain spectrum to ensure that uh, the third party of the third party of the third party um, has controls in place to, 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 to secure the whole supply chain, essentially. You know, we, we see ongoing guidance from government organizations like CISA, but then I also think of, uh, you know, schools, uh, organizations that are chronically underfunded but uh, still have to provide services. Um, is there a role for the government themselves to step up and, and help provide uh, some of the services that these uh, chronically underfunded organizations may need? There are debates on both sides of the house on that, Dave, and I, I do certainly have my own opinions. Uh, one thing that's important to highlight is, uh, in America at least, we handle things a little differently than the Europeans and the other and the rest of the world. So, for example, in Europe um, or uh, in Asian Pacific, 
the government will pass regulations and force everybody to do that. An example is GDPR, right? Uh, that's a mm-hmm. uh, the, the the EU privacy law that was passed by uh, by the EU, you know, parliament or government, right? In the U.S., one thing that's different is that the government uh, try to push push down all those things to the private sector, which I think, in my opinion, is is more beneficial for the for mm-hmm. the private sector to uh, to handle that. Um, however, what the government should do is provide subsidies to big corporations. Think about corporations like Verizon or Comcast or or or, or many of the several companies that are out there, like Apple. If they provide tax benefits and subsidies to those companies so that they can, in a bigger scale, go to the rural areas and provide free internet, as we saw in in, in a lot of rural areas that happened. You know, America step, stepped up, but it was mostly done by the private sector, right? But they were getting subsidies and and tax benefits from uh, from the government in order to provide free Wi-Fi and um, um, some some sort of level of uh, hardware as well for students, underprivileged students that could not afford a laptop, for example. Uh, the private sector was stepping up. T-Mobile donated millions of dollars. So as Verizon and and Apple as well from a hardware standpoint, and Dell provided several I mean, hundreds of thousands of computers. Um, so um, to answer your question, yes, the government has to do that. However, uh, in contrast to what the the EU is. is usually does, I think, instead of the government passing out regulations. Um, that's why we don't have a federal privacy law in the U.S. You know, the gov- the federal government allows us, the different states and the private sector to regulate that. And it provides subsidies to companies that are forward thinking and um, and tax benefits as well to ensure that if the private sector does that, they are being supported as well. Hmm. What sort of advice are you giving for the organizations that you work with in order in, in, a, in terms of you know, them being on top of this and, and making sure that they're prepared for these regulations that are going to be coming and also just protecting the organizations themselves? Sure, that's a great question. And there, and there, are, two, there are two aspects to that question. Um, the A part you ask is regarding regulations. Uh, from my perspective, you need to have a legal team in place, right? A, a legal team that understands the types of data that you have internally. Uh, obviously, the legal team is working with your security team as well. Once you understand the types of data that you have and you classify them based on the level of risk, then you know the experts from a legal standpoint are monitoring uh, the regulations to ensure that the organization is staying up to date on those regulations and they are not violating any rules and things like that. Now, you know, in order to do business in California, which I think most organizations do, uh, collect information from Californian residents, you, you have to comply with uh, the CCPA, the California uh, Consumer Privacy Act, right? So you need a legal team and a security team that's up to date on those standards and periodically monitoring the sort of data that you guys are collecting, the retention of those data and things like that. So having a legal team to, to uh, ensure that you are staying up to date and abreast on regulations is super important, whether it's internal or external. You can have um, external consultants as well help from that perspective. Uh, from a security standpoint, a risk assessment is critical, right? Performing a risk assessment to ensure that you're classifying um, all the different levels of threats to, to your organization's assets. Um, you're doing a, a risk-based scoring system to, to determine what score am I assigning to this particular threat to cripple organization? And then you're implementing controls to mitigate that risk, right? Having an incident response plan, super important, as I mentioned earlier, and a disaster recovery plan to ensure that you can resume business and continue servicing your, your customers 
if you have or when, not if, but when you have a uh, an attack or, or you have a downtime. Um, but it's also important to make sure that you're having cyber insurance. And uh, Dave, as we both know, today's cyber insurance, the premiums are not cheap. They continue going up year over year. Matter of fact, mm. most cyber insurance companies are controlling the conversation. So what that means is if you don't have those minimum things that I described, like risk assessments and disaster recovery plans, penetration testing performed by an external third party, you probably will not even qualify to get cyber insurance in the first place, right? You need to have those minimum controls. But having cyber insurance is critically important today. Most investors um, from a venture capital standpoint will not even give seed money to any startup if you don't have some sort of uh, cybersecurity practices and cyber insurance in place as well. So I think those are the minimum things that organizations need to do. And then do periodic audits, right? Things like uh, ISO 27000 and SAC2 and depending on what sort of data you're handling, PCI DSS and, and HIPAA and HITRUST and NIST 800, all those things are important to do as well to ensure that you are monitoring your controls over time. What do you think? This is a really good interview. Uh, one of the most striking points to me is when you asked him, well, what can organizations do about this? Yeah. And the two things he mentioned were uh, hire good attorneys and purchase cyber insurance. <laughs> right. Those happen to be like two of the most expensive things, especially for a small organization. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just, I am sympathetic to smaller companies who are faced with these large regulatory regimes that are very difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't have the resources to hire the best attorneys uh, or purchase cyber insurance. Uh, so I think even when regulations are well-intentioned, as I think everything uh, he was discussing in this interview is well-intentioned, yeah. uh, I just kind of, my reaction was if the best way to ameliorate these problems is to hire expensive attorneys and uh, get expensive cyber insurance, that's going to be a problem for a lot of companies. You know, it reminds me, I, I have a friend who was uh, an executive at a, a local bank, you know, a community bank, a small chain, you know, half a dozen right. local banks. And I was uh, talking with her and I just asking her about how are things going in the banking world? And one of the things she mentioned was that she didn't think we were going to be able to have community banks for much longer because of the regulatory regime that it put in place, it was really hard for them to be competitive at the scale that they would run at. So in order to be compliant, she believed they would, it was in their best interest to basically be absorbed by a bigger company that could handle all that. And she questioned, is that good for the community? For I mean, there to be two or three banks in the nation, you know? <laughs> no, it's not good for the community. It's really bad. And there are a lot of scholars who have argued that sometimes the very companies that push for these stringent regulations are the ones who want to drive their smaller competitors out of business. Mm. And they're the ones who uh, have the lobbyists that can make this this change happen. And it, re it is really unfair. Yeah. And the deck is stacked against these smaller companies. Yeah. Um, so... That's why I think it's just something you have to keep in mind. Not regulations aren't inherently good or bad. Right. Um, it depends on what the regulation is and, and where it's targeted. But it is a real phenomenon that oftentimes even seemingly benevolent regulations end up hurting the little guys uh, disproportionately. Yeah. 
All right. Well, again, our thanks to Blaze Wabo. He is from the cybersecurity firm Align. We do appreciate him taking the time for us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.